Hey, it's Justin Womack, and welcome to the first ever interview episode of the Business Dynamics Podcast. We're kicking off the show with behavioral expert Chase Hughes, and I'm excited to introduce you to this man who's going to blow your mind with the level of insights on human behavior and psychology that you're going to learn today. So without any further ado, let's just dive right into the interview. This week, I have the very honorable distinction of being able to introduce a very special guest, Chase Hughes, who is a leading military and intelligence behavior expert with 20 years of experience. He has broken down human behaviors in such a manner that you, he's actually created a periodic table of the elements for human gestures and behaviors as a way of identifying nonverbal cues and, and ways of predicting behavior. Uh, he's also the author of the best-selling book, The Ellipsis Manual, and he's worked with organizations like the FBI and several branches of the military, including in endeavors like interrogation, deception detection, and advanced behavioral investigation. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Chase Hughes. Thank you for joining me today, Chase. How are you? I'm doing great, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to have you on here. Um, it's interesting. I, I've listened to a couple of your podcast episodes. I've, I've skimmed your book. I need to really sit down and, and read it cover to cover because it's very in-depth and it's like a textbook in nature. Um, I have a few questions. So let's go back into your background a bit. I want to I hear kind of what got you into human behavior, why this, and then, and then I have some follow-up questions to that. But let, let me just hear like the, the general backdrop of what got you into this field to begin with. I uh, started getting interested in psychology when I was a teenager. I was 18 or 19. I was in the Navy. I was uh, stationed out in Pearl Harbor. And going around in Pearl Harbor, uh, or, sorry, Waikiki Beach as this teenager, I ran into a young lady one evening. I kind of just asked her on a date and she said no. And I remember going home that evening and typing in how to tell when girls like you into Google. How old were you this time? 19. 19, okay. And I came up with all kinds of stuff. So I printed out this massive stack of documents and just kind of sat there and read through these. And it became really addictive. And the more familiar I got with reading people and understanding nonverbal behavior, uh, the closer I got to being able to see the kind of hidden side of everybody. And as a kid, I think I had social anxiety and all of these skills kind of made that go away because it showed me how uh, just kind of messed up everybody is. And there's no exception to it. Like everybody's screwed up. Everyone's insecure. Everyone's suffering. And I thought I was misreading people for a long time. And I was like, there's no way that all these people could be insecure. And it turns out, yeah, everybody, everybody's messed up. Sure enough. Sure enough. That's interesting because I, I kind of had a similar trajectory when I was around that age. Because I recall, you, you know, I ex definitely experienced social anxiety to the point that, you know, people that knew me only in like the school or public setting would call me shy. People that knew me privately would have a different label for me. But it, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of funny because I, I also kind of went to Google when I was young like that and was searching for answers in a similar way. And I remember discovering Tony Robbins at a young age and oh yeah, several of these, um, other gurus at a young age that were teaching kind of the social dynamic skills. And I didn't take it up at the same level you did, but I definitely dove in at a young age and it was something that fascinated me early on. So what, what was the, like, what made it actually like, what was the first thing you did when you, when you pursued this path? Like, 
did you attend a seminar? Did you buy a book? What was like the first thing that really got you into this uh, beyond just that wanting to understand why a girl said no? Uh, the first thing I did, I went on to the, I think it was eBay because I don't think Amazon was, had much of a presence in 1999. And, uh, so I went on to eBay and I bought kind of the original book on body language, which is just called body language. And it was written by a guy named Julius Fast. And he's the guy who actually invented that term as far as I know. And that sent me even further kind of over the edge to try to study this stuff. And I started going to a lot of seminars and just kind of being active duty military, I was able to use just that status to kind of get into some of the government side seminars. And I kind of just ran into this guy one day who eventually turned up to be my mentor. And he was a senior intelligence guy and really walked me through the fundamental things on how to read people that I have, to this day, I've never seen in a book. Interesting. Let me ask you this, because I've, I've attended like NLP seminars and some of the stuff that we do in those, like the smaller workshops is we actually do try to observe body language and try to be, um, and try to pick up on, on subtle, uh, subtle behaviors or like, you know, facial coloring changes, um, things like that. Uh, I've always struggled with being with noticing like the subtle body language uh, ticks or, or, or changes. Is that something that you were a natural at right away? Or did you develop that skill over time? Because I've struggled with that when I've tried it in the past. I think for me, it was a strange process. When I first started reading about body language, I became even more self-conscious. So I would kind of monitor myself and I would be <laughs> spend most of my like CPU memory uh, was just kind of burned up trying to make sure I gave off the right body language. And it took me a couple of years to get through that and just kind of get over it. And at the beginning, it was also overwhelming trying to see all of this stuff at one time. And after five or six years, I've got to the point where I could see everything. And then I would teach my friends and it would be, they would say it was too much. So finally, I realized you just got to start small. You just got to spend a couple of days just watching a blink rate, for instance, how often someone's blinking. And just get that from your conscious to your unconscious. So just get the reps in as much as you can on one thing. And you get good at it and you kind of do it naturally. And then start with the next thing where it's in your conscious for a long time, then you move it to unconscious, like the process of uh, tying our shoes. We've got to do a lot of reps, but now, you know, once we grow up, that's just a natural thing. We don't even have to look. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, one of my mentors has talked about, like when you're developing a new skill that has several components simultaneously, it's going to require subconscious skills uh, eventually. Uh, but what he teaches is kind of stacking one skill at a time, overloading the brain. And yeah, over time, it takes a while sometimes, maybe one year, maybe two years, maybe five years, maybe less. Uh, but there tends to be almost like popcorn, where you have your you have your popcorn kernel, that's it's a kernel. Um, and it's, you know, you're slowly heating it up, heating it up, heating it up by doing all these reps. And eventually one day it just pops. And, um, and your subconscious mind takes over. And so it sounds like that's kind of what you've experienced, because you're not you're probably not thinking about this consciously anymore. It's just kind of natural to you. Is that right? That's very much what I experienced. And that's probably the best metaphor 
uh, I've ever heard to kind of describe that process. It's really, really great metaphor. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's like a total transition state. Here you are, you know, as one phase to another instantaneously. So yeah, it is. Uh, it's not, I can't take credit for it, but uh, I love that metaphor as well. <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, one other thing I wanted to, I wanted to talk about is that, you know, I did a little bit of research on you uh, and I saw that you had, you had done some research yourself on a government program called MK Ultra. Um, oh, I know that you've, you've been pretty deep in this. And my understanding of MK Ultra was that it was like a CIA operation in the 60s or 70s that was, that was seeking to basically manipulate or control human behavior um, and used a series of ethical and non-ethical means, including giving psychedelics to people. Uh, lots of pretty extreme strategies to do this. Is, is, um, how deep did you dive into this? And is any of your findings based on the research you found from that? Or like how, how much of an impact did that have on what you've discovered? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. So the MK Ultra program is fascinating. For anyone who hasn't heard of it, you need to look this up even if you just kind of look up a YouTube. It was 50s and 60s, and the CIA was basically, at first, trying to figure out a truth serum. So they shipped in a whole bunch of acid. And even the CIA's admitted that a lot of, most of the acid that came into the country during the early to late 60s uh, was from the CIA bringing it in. And, and it was all because of a, uh, a guy who ordered this stuff and mislabeled milligrams versus grams. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a pretty big mistake on that, uh, on those kind of drugs. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in the program kind of uh, evolved into us seeking a way to do some extreme forms of interrogation or persuasion because we were seeing these Koreans uh, captured United States soldiers in Korea who were denouncing the United States at just after a few days. And they were signing documents, making videos that they didn't like their country anymore. And this was a scary threat to the United States. We saw this and uh, director of the CIA back then, I think his name was uh, Dulles, saw all this. And they said, well, we need, this is an arms race at this point. And this, it's kind of a, a psychological arms race for hearts and minds. If we kind of get this influence thing really mapped out, we'll, we'll be on top of this arms race. So they brought in a bunch of Nazi scientists, and this is not a conspiracy theory that you can look this up. It's called Operation Paperclip. Uh, gave them pretty much diplomatic immunity, gave them new identities here in America, uh, just because of the research they had done. And then the the CIA themselves, uh, well, the, this part of the program anyway, went on this extremely unethical tangent uh, in trying to do this stuff uh, using hypnosis, uh, drugs, psychedelics, uh, sleep deprivation, sensory deprivation, everything you could possibly imagine. It's like a, the beginning of a Jason Bourne movie, except <laughs> 10 times worse. And it's real too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I don't necessarily want to get into too much of the details, but I want to know is like, what did they find from all of this that ended up being effective and what, um, was there anything that came out of this that was positive? I mean, I mean, yeah, what you described, they're bringing over Nazi scientists and giving immunity. That's not exactly a, uh, a good thing, especially from everything that was happening over there with the human experimentation. 
but was there a silver lining to any of this in terms of like some of the research that came out of it? Like what, what did we find? Like what, 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 or did we find anything that really moved the needle in identifying human behavior? I think uh, silver lining depends on who's looking at it. Uh, yeah. And one hand we say, we have somebody that says, Oh, we have these persuasion techniques. You could make somebody just walk in front of a moving bus on the other hand, you could use the same technique to treat schizophrenia or depression or PTSD or postpartum depression and get some really good results. And one thing that came out of the program, uh, there's the director of the CIA at the end of all this, his name was Richard Helms, issued this massive document destruction order. But some documents survived in these private notebooks of a guy and he was a professor at Colgate University in, in New York, upstate New York. And his name was Dr. George Estabrooks. And he corresponded with J. Edgar Hoover, Milton Erickson, who's a famous uh, hypnotherapist, psychotherapist. And he was a big part of this thing. And he had a lot of this stuff in his private notebooks that didn't make the cut for the destruction order because they were his private uh, belongings. And that is where I found most of the valuable information. He, uh, Dr. George Estabrooks, invented the program to literally create a Manchurian candidate. And how, uh, you mentioned like, you know, getting somebody to walk in front of a bus. Does that technology exist where somebody could um, actually manipulate that kind of behavior, like do the Manchurian candidate type of uh, deal where they absolutely control somebody to commit an act that they normally would not commit on their own? Oh, yeah. So there's three factors for that to happen. Number one is the influence or persuasion skill of the, let's just say an operator, the person doing it. Mm -hmm. Number two, the suggestibility of the person that's being spoken to. And number three, the ability of that operator to grab, get a firm grip on that person's suggestibility dial, so to speak, and crank it up to 10 or 11. So that's part of that process is how do we ratchet up someone's suggestibility? And that then they become a t the type of person who falls into this category of someone who would respond like that to someone who had an extreme level of social or persuasion skills. Like uh, uh, to use a bad example, we have like Charles Manson. Mm -hmm. So... What are, the, what are the factors that are going to increase suggestibility? I mean, the one that, I mean, what I'm just thinking in mind, we've talked before about like the Milgram experiments and the power of being an authority figure, just wearing a lab coat, um, being in charge of an experiment and how that can impact behavior. So it, what is, is that one of the drivers or what are the drivers to what's going to make somebody more suggestible? So we identified five major factors in the behavior of the person doing the influencing. And one of those are called the authority character traits. And I can kind of unpack those for you. The rest I teach in, in my classes and stuff. Mm -hmm. But these character traits are massively important. So on the, on the surface level, we just have these five traits that are one of these five things. So the, these authority traits, which is number one of these five kind of obedience trip wires. These traits would be confidence, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and just a sense of enjoyment with your life. And confidence, just meaning like not to 
sit here and give a class on self-confidence, but this just means you have an extremely good reputation with yourself. Extremely good. Discipline, meaning that you are able to accomplish what you need to do. Leadership, and I, I personally define leadership as the ability to produce followers from your behavior all by itself, from your behavior alone. And gratitude, obviously, we are all familiar with that concept. And the sense of enjoyment is probably the thing that makes the person magnetic enough for the person listening to sit there and talk to them for a bit because they feel like they're getting something positive out of the situation. Now, the way that these things all come together is that if you think of the last time like you went to a really cool party and you put on like your best shirt, your best suit pants, you shined your shoes, everything was looking good, and you got to the party and someone started talking to you and you kind of felt like a fake, maybe just a little bit. And then you remembered you are presenting an image of this guy who's got all of his crap together. You've, you've got everything handled. But back at home, you have a six-foot pile of laundry that you didn't get to. You've got unpaid bill notices sitting on your kitchen counter. You've got a sink full of dishes, whatever it is. You are presenting an image of having your act together, and you know damn well that you don't. And What's amazing about our, our brains as humans is that the lower part of our brain, which some people call the mammalian brain, and we have the reptilian brain underneath that, but this, this mammal brain reads nonverbal behavior extremely well because language or just our ability to talk to each other and do podcasts is very new. It's a new part of our brain, but nonverbal behavior has outdated language by 10 million years. It's just a random number, but it's probably more than that. So that's really important. And it's not that we know how to read body language. It's that our body sends us signals. So think of the last time you spoke to another person and something felt off about it. Something just didn't feel right. Everything looked great on the outside. The person had, was confident that their body language was good, but something didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. That precise moment is your brain, that mammal part of our brain does not speak English. It doesn't speak any languages. All it can do is kind of give you a gut feeling. It doesn't have the language capabilities. So that gut feeling is a result of us seeing some kind of conflict in the person that's speaking to us. And that makes a lot of sense with, with leaders or people that tap into that gut feeling and act on it. I know from my own experience, I've had feelings like that before and I've ignored them. And oftentimes it's been a huge mistake when I've done that. So it, yeah, it, it's what fascinates me about what you're saying though, is that basically we can dress to the nines. We can fake it till we make it kind of thing. Or I mean, take that philosophy anyway, but our, our subconscious mind is not going to buy it. So unless we're actually doing the actions at home and we, you know, we're keeping our, house clean um, and everything in order, then uh, no matter what we do to try to fake it, we're, we're pretty much not going to, we're not going to fool anybody is kind of what you're saying. Now, is there any exceptions to this? Are there people that can fool other people or is it, is that pretty much a hundred percent rule? I would say there's no rule that's a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the, the people that can fool people are very few and far between and they're more likely to be uh, more antisocial uh, anyway. 
And I would say the people that maybe can fake this stuff, they send signals as well, but they just may be different. And it's always funny to me, I get a call and obviously I don't teach a lot of the, like the more dangerous stuff I I don't include uh, in my trainings, but I get calls from people every once in a while that want to do some kind of private one-on-one training. And they say, Oh, I want all of the, all the information. Uh, What's your price? I'll write you a check right now. And I look at my phone and you can tell, do you have an iPhone, Justin? I do. Okay. So, you know, when you call somebody, you can see that little FaceTime icon. And when you're talking to somebody with an Android, it's got a question mark on that little FaceTime thing. Yeah. So I saw this guy had, uh, this one of these guys one time had an iPhone and I said, Hey, can, can you FaceTime me really quick? And he turned on his FaceTime and this guy, his room looked like a high school teenager. <laughs> like there was crap everywhere. And I asked him, like, do you really want me to tell you what I'm, what I'm thinking about right now? And he goes, yes, absolutely. And I said, you want to learn how to control another human being. And you have absolutely zero control over yourself. That's a major issue. And that's probably step one. Well, let me ask you this, because this is a personal question. Because I, I came from a corporate background in a lot. I mean, I worked in the insurance industry for almost 10 years, almost a decade. And in that industry, it was always, you know, kind of formal attire, shirt and tie. And after exiting, I kind of abandoned that. And, and now I, I like to, so a lot of times I like to wear a baseball hat. And, and I'm, I just wanted to ask you, does that put me at a disadvantage automatically with people? Or if I, if I'm if I'm grooming myself and taking care of it, can I still get by with that kind of a look? I would say you can absolutely get by with a look like that. So let's unpack this just a little bit to answer this question. I think your listeners will benefit as well. Yeah. So with the uh, baseball cap analogy, uh, let's first take it to the what's proven, actually proven. So the Institute for Force Science, uh, which studies violence against police officers, and uh, Many FBI statistics have proven that police officers who wear a baseball cap instead of a regular baseball cap are around 18% more likely to be attacked by civilians, Huh? which is a big deal. That's a big number. That's a big number, yes. <laughs> and one thing in common that all, uh, that the FBI, this is according to the FBI report, that everything had in common was the officer's appearance was probably number one. And these guys even went into the prison systems and talked to the perpetrators who did this. And they said, why did you hit this officer? Why did you attack this officer? And they would say, well, it just looked like I could take him. It was all about appearance every single time. And in one instance, this guy had attacked this officer, took his gun, killed him, but had been pulled over earlier that day by a state trooper. And that state trooper had a perfect looking uniform on. He was physically fit. And they asked him, what's the difference? And he said, well, with the second guy, he just looked like, looked like a slob, looked like I could take him. So I did. And that was his answer. But getting back to your question, I think a lot, there's a lot more than clothing involved because that subconscious part of our brain is picking up blink rate. It's picking up how fast you're breathing, whether or not your voice sounds scared, 
whether or not your fingers are twitching during a conversation. If you seem uncomfortable in your own skin, that is the biggest red flag for authority and influence there is. However, the clothing that you do wear does make a major difference in how people react to you. For instance, there, there's another scientific study in, done in Dallas, Texas. I think they repeated it in Los Angeles, where this guy in a blue jeans and, and T-shirt would break the crosswalk. So basically, it said, do not cross during a major, you know, major intersection. But no cars were coming, so he would just kind of break the crosswalk and go ahead and walk. Three or four people followed him. The same guy puts on a suit and tie, gets a haircut. Same guy breaks the crosswalk and increases the rate of people who follow him by 80%. (laughs) So this is without any communication. There's no words being spoken. He's not identified as anybody special. It's just a change of clothing caused random strangers to break the law. That's fascinating. So just the, just the appearance of looking like somebody that has it together was, uh, was enough to move their behavior. Interesting. For sure. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's take a step back. So knowing these kind of drivers, how can we apply this in the, in the sales and marketing world to move a buyer from a state of indifference to a state of interest and, uh, and influence them? How, how, would, how would some of these techniques apply? I, I think common sense wise, I get the idea that just demonstrating confidence, not having fidgety fingers, not demonstrating nerves and, and uh, tells in your voice, would be among those uh, among those ideas, but what else can we? Uh, what else would you say to somebody like in the sales, marketing, business world, uh, to how some of these um, techniques could apply to them? Yes, I'm, I'm definitely not a marketing guy, and uh, I don't specifically teach any sales or anything like that. But I would definitely come back with a question, like if I was training somebody to do this through my techniques, my question would be. What makes you keep a book open? So you're, you pick up a, a copy of a fictional novel at a bookstore. You open to page one, chapter one. What keeps you there? That first hmm. sentence of the book uh, is usually wild. And even, uh, let's, let's just talk about something like a kid's book, like Charlotte's Web. The first line of that book is, I wonder where dad's going with that axe. (laughs) So kind of a pattern interrupt too. Yeah, it's a pattern interrupt and it makes you, number one, it makes a promise that this question that you're asking in your head will be answered. And number two, it forces you to ask that question. And it also creates intrigue because you've opened up this idea that he has an axe and what's going to happen next. So you have this cliffhanger type. um, So you have this like intrigue frame that's developed as well. For sure. So we have that focus, then we develop interest, and that leads into curiosity. And our next step is to figure out what emotional state does this person need to be in to make the decision I want them to make. And then the process is get focused, interest, curiosity. And then we're either telling stories or illustrating something, showing them a video of some sort, and depends on the environment. But we're doing something to elicit the emotion that we want that person to experience that will help them to make this choice and go, yeah, I'll click this button. I'll buy this now. That's fascinating. You mentioned stories. 
And my experience with stories has been that nothing drives emotion like a story. Like I could, I could give all the amazing facts, all the amazing benefits, all the, all the stuff in the world, but telling a, a story is what, it, what moves the needle in terms of um, eliciting a human emotion. Have you done any research as to why that is? And is storytelling a skill that you've worked on yourself and developed? Or, or tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think as early as we've had language, we've had stories. And I think that we are hardwired to respond to stories just from an evolutionary perspective. Because if you go back just, let's say, 200,000 years, the beginning of Homo sapiens, apparently, and you're sitting around a fire in a village, and one of the village elders is telling a story about how he was injured hunting. If you don't pay attention to that, you could suffer the same fate. So the stories were a way for us to learn from other people's mistakes and other people's pitfalls so that we didn't encounter them. And our brains, the people who were really attracted to stories, had children because they survived. So all of our ancestors were people who were attracted to stories. And if you are not attracted to stories and you don't listen, you're more likely to get killed by a lion or a saber-toothed tiger, and you're less likely to have sex and have babies. So it's like an evolutionary psychology kind of thing where it was a survival mechanism in early man days and it's something that passed down generation to generation. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And then what keeps us glued in to most of the stories is not really the emotional content, but the tension. So we have tension and we have suspense. Tension is when we, there's something there that we're not really sure about. Suspense is once we know what's there, but we don't know what's going to happen. So tension would be two guys sitting at a table who really disagree with each other, and we don't know if they're going to fight or not. Suspense would be revealed when the, someone says, but there was a bomb under the table, and the clock was ticking. That would be the suspense. When we reveal a piece of information, but we hold back a little bit, or we kind of give them a, a counting down clock. Like if you take the opening scene of uh, Inglorious Bastards, a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's been a while, but I've seen it. Oh yeah, I remember now. Yes, I just remembered. Okay. So this, uh, uh, I think his name was Petit, Colonel Petit or, or something like that. Chris, Christoph Waltz, though, his character. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He comes in and they, these characters kind of, have no control of the situation and the tension is just massive as they sit down and have this conversation. They're at, at competing ends. And then about 10 minutes into this giant, massive tension, Tarantino shows you that there's Jews hiding under the floorboards right below their feet. And that's the, that's the ticking bomb kind of theory that he, he put in there. Yeah, I remember it was a very, very powerful scene. And, and I don't always remember the beginning of movies and it took me a second, but I, I do recall that one. So how, how have you used stories in your consulting, in your business? Has it ever applied to like interrogation tactics? Like how, do, how does stories, how else do you use stories in this whole human behavior influence area? I wouldn't say for me that it's a go-to tactic in interrogations. But in persuasion realm or influence realm, stories are fantastic because I can tell a story about experiencing some kind of emotion. And in order for you to understand it, you've got to go through that same process. The caveat is that no one ever tells you in all these trainings 
is that number one, you have to have your shit together. You have to know exactly what you're doing and you, you have to be on level with uh, what your internal and external communication are. That means like make your bed, get like vacuum up those French fries that have been under your car seat for six weeks. Like just like handle your, your business. And step two, the story's got to be interesting enough. So you have to kind of hook someone into a story and give them some kind of emotional investment to listen to what's going on. And inside of a story, we can have all kinds of different metaphors. And one that I've used when I wanted someone to start changing the way that they view things, especially when I'm talking to an adult, is something like uh, something that's called an organ transplant metaphor. And this is where I would just say, you know, I was reading this extremely fascinating article the other day, and they were, these doctors had compiled this massive list, and you wouldn't believe what they kind of came up with. And for me, as a psychology guy, it had a lot of re relevance. And they said that some organs, even if the blood type is the same, and the organ is a perfect match for the person that gets an organ transplant, somebody gets a new kidney or new liver, the body eventually starts to notice that it doesn't belong there and starts to attack it. And it's really similar to uh, how we grow up and we start to realize that we've carried all of these strange beliefs and rules about how we're supposed to live from childhood. And our brain gradually starts to realize that all of those things are not ours. Someone else put them there. And then the brain just starts destroying that stuff and getting rid of it. It's really, really interesting. And you, you've, you've convinced me to put a little bit more care into, uh, into some of the stuff that I do to take care of myself. Like, you know, from time to time, I'll let my car go without getting a good car wash and, and, and things like that. That I, I do think, like looking back, like times when I've experienced like the most confidence have been like when everything's been in order. Like when I, when I look back thinking about this right now. So it, that's a, a fascinating thing to think of the impact that these little things can have when accumulated. And so I think that's a great insight and that's a great takeaway for anybody listening to this is that like, get your shit together, uh, get to the basics, uh, clean your, clean your room, clean your dishes, uh, do your laundry. As Hulk Hogan once said, eat your vegetable or take your vegetables to your homework. I don't know. <laughs> true, man. And that's same for your audience. If you go back to a point in your life when everything uh, was working, just try to imagine the last point in the last 10 years when you felt like you were the most influential that you've ever been. And I, I would almost guarantee you that your stuff was together. Even if it was for a brief moment, your environment was taken care of. You're socially, you were, you were taken care of with your friends. You had uh, very limited financial problems. So when all of that stuff is kind of handled and put together, we fill out that first tripwire of human obedience. We, we become more influential. We're also happier. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you mentioned financial right there. That, that's interesting. So like somebody in debt, like what kind of impact is debt going to have um, over somebody that's looking to establish themselves as an authority figure? Is that going to be one of those subconscious uh, drivers that's going to take them down subconsciously? Um, is that because, I mean, how, how would debt impact all of this? Because that's, that's an interesting statement there. Great question. And I think uh, it depends on how that person views debt. Like a socially intelligent person, somebody who's intellectually developed, socially developed and smart, understands that debt is bad. And it's more likely to hurt a smart person than a, a complete idiot who doesn't care. 
Yeah. And uh, well, when I said that, though, there's also like the, the side that there are people that understand how to leverage debt, um, like the super financially educated. And that's a little bit different than people that have accumulated large amounts of credit card debt. And, uh, um, you know, having that is a very different type of debt that's going to only incur damages. Um, and that's interesting that you say like, the smarter you are, because the smarter people are probably going to be the ones that pay their bills. The other ones are just going to accumulate a lot of debt and just let them lapse. Um, that's an interesting statement too. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. I assumed you were talking about bad debt. Yeah. I, and I, I was for the most part, I was just kind of, as I was saying, it, I was thinking out loud how there's different types, but yes, it was mainly alluding to bad debt, which would be the one, something that's going to drive down your feelings about yourself and lower your authority status. For sure. So this is all, this is all fascinating. Now let's like just kind of, uh, for fun here, I'm just curious of like other applications. If, if you were going to take some of these and take it to the poker table, for instance, how, how, do I, how do I get somebody to fold the winning hand if I've got, you know, I've got the bad cards, they've got the good ones? How do I communicate that through body language? Let's, let's hear some insight here. Uh, if, if you're the one, are you the one doing the reading or are you the one trying to trick the other person? Um, well, let's try, let's try both scenarios. So let's, let's, start with, let's start with I'm doing the reading. Let's start with that one, actually. Okay. Doing the reading, you don't necessarily need to get a baseline on who you're talking to but it's really, really important to do that. And one of the best ways to kind of see when somebody has pulled a bad card or they're holding a bad hand or they've just drawn a card they don't like is the two things I personally look for first are the first one is lip compression. So the moment they look at the card, you'll see tiny muscles move that kind of squeeze the lips together. Hmm. And it's, it's, especially if they're trying to hide it, it's going to be a really micro movement. And the second is an increase in blink rate. And this is great for sales as well. So the, the blink rate indicates someone's level of interest or stress. So for instance, the, the last time you watched a movie that you really liked, so like the last time I watched uh, Interstellar, my blink rate was probably around like a six. And when I'm stressed out, like during the, the math portion of my SAT exams, <laughs> my blink rate was probably like a 65. <laughs> but we, we don't notice the increase and decrease in blink rate because it's a completely unconscious behavior. So it's not really something that someone can manage on a conscious level. So that's what makes it reliable. The more, so the, the blink rate will speed up if they've got something bad. And in, if you're in sales or business negotiation or you're doing a job interview, um, you'll see blink rate go up as stress goes up. And the more relaxed or focused that person is, the slower or less often they'll blink. Now, would this be like consistent with somebody that's potentially lying or um, as a sign of deception as well, like a blink rate increases, or does it vary on the person? It definitely could be, but it's not, it's not in my top 20 at all. Not in your top 20. Okay. So it just, so basically if it's in that situation, all it indicates is that they are feeling a little increase in stress, but it doesn't necessarily equate to uh, deception. Right. And, and technically there is no human behavior that equates to deception. Okay. But I imagine though, that taking in groups though, that's, is that kind of what you're saying then to you? It's uh, it's groups that you look at or what does that mean when you say that? Yes. Yeah, so we're, any, anytime someone talks about body language of deception or lie detection, all we're detecting is stress. There's nothing else. Yeah. So 
And what we're looking for with distress is multiple stress indicators. Someone's touching their face and their lips are compressing together. Someone's touching their face and they used a verbal phrase that didn't have pronouns inside of it. So something like that, we're looking to kind of combine these deception indicators. And which essentially is what a polygraph is doing as well, which is basically just measuring like skin galvanic response. So what else is in a polygraph? And do you believe that those are reliable? Polygraphs, there's too much science against them uh, for me to, to really put much faith in them. Uh, there's a lot of new software out there. There's even, there's one AI machine on earth that is around 98% accurate. Wow. Because it probably picks up like tonality changes then too, I would imagine. Because with AI, you can do things that a polygraph could never do. Yeah, it picks up a lot more than that. And it's, it sounds like it's a voice stress analyzer. Uh, but you could just talk to this thing on the phone and it measures uh, just unbelievable amounts of data. It's owned by a company called uh, AC Global Risk. And it's crazy. Um, they work with companies uh, just worldwide uh, doing vetting for employees or people in high theft industries uh, to kind of screen and, and see who the good guys are. Who do we need to talk to? Who do we need to interview? So it's, yeah. it's a fantastic tool. Interesting. It has a lot of positive applications and it could also be used in other, in other manners. Um, but yeah, the power of AI is, is pretty incredible. Skynet is almost here. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not far. It's not far. Uh, yeah. So let's, let's go back to that poker scenario. Um, so if you were the one that's trying to, trying to initiate deception and not be detected and you're the one trying to get somebody to fold their cards, what, what kind of approach do you take to that? Cause I, I look at these as both like metaphors for a multiple of multiple life scenarios, but let's just use poker as the metaphor here. It's really hard to manage behavior that you've done unconsciously uh, for 30 years or however old you are. And not only is it done unconsciously during your lifetime, it's programmed in your DNA for the past 10 million years. So it's, it's really hard to manage that behavior. But if you were paying me to give you coaching on this, I would tell you, hypothetically speaking, if you had around 100 milligrams of metoprolol and around 500 milligrams of something called methocarbamol. That's like the ultimate uh, body language dampening mix. Interesting. I'll have to put affiliate links in the show notes for all poker players listening to this right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Put the link in there direct to like the pharmaceutical company. (laughs) That's uh, I've never heard that before. That's a, uh, that's a, that's the first time I've ever heard uh, anyone talk about performance enhancing drugs for, uh, for poker. Yeah, well, I, and I definitely, I'm not telling anyone to take it. I absolutely don't take it unless you uh, speak to a physician because they are, they are prescription drugs. Good, good to know. I guess I won't be able to get away with the affiliate link then. Oh, well. <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting close to the end of our time here, and we've unpacked a whole lot of stuff here. I mean, we've only scratched the surface in a number of ways. So what are some ways for the listeners here to get in touch with you? Are you doing any speaking gigs in the near future? And how do, how do, they, how do they contact you and learn more about you? What's the best ways to do that? Yeah, we have uh, gigs coming up all the time. And they're on the, the bottom of the website. The website's super easy, chasehughes.com. And uh, you can get in touch with me anywhere there on the website. And uh, I even have, uh, if you just Google my name, uh, it'll be... I think it'll be the first result. And then tell me a little bit about the book, the, the ellipsis manual. What year did the book come out? Like how, how long has that been out now? 
I think it's been, uh, I think we're about to hit three years. Three years. Okay. So it's, it's pretty new. And I, I've heard you say this, but can you tell the listeners the, the genesis of the title? Why, why the ellipsis manual as the title of that book? Well, writing this thing was not something I ever wanted to do. Uh, it was this, I looked for persuasion stuff and I looked for influence stuff my whole life. And every book was just loaded down with theory. One of the greatest books on influence was written by Robert Cialdini. Mm-hmm. That's uh, one of my favorites. And I loved that book. And it's all theory. You don't get to the end of a chapter. And then he goes, all right, here's 17 ways you can use this theory that we just talked about. There's nothing. And I was upset. So I built the book. I built like this master volume of human influence that I wanted to read. And this was over the course of 20 years of research and a a long time doing this on an operational level. But the, the title for the book came from the grammatical punctuation symbol called the ellipses, which is just a dot, dot, dot. And if we see that in language, it just means that there was omitted or language that was unseen. And I thought that was a really, I I just thought it sounded cool, first of all. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that, uh, I think that just that really communicates that this is, we're learning to see something that no one else can see. And it's extremely powerful. It also puts people in that intrigue, intrigue frame. Um, and it's fascinating. Like you said, the first line of a, of a book matters. Well, the title matters just as much um, because you have to get somebody to open the book yeah. to find the first line of the book. Oh, true. So I, I, the book's available on Amazon. Is it, is it available through your website as well? Or what's the best way for them to get that? Is that Amazon? Uh, best, fastest, and cheapest is, is Amazon. If, you, if you're a huge Barnes & Noble, diehard Barnes & Noble fan, they've got it as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chase, for doing this interview with me. It's been a pleasure. Now, are you still consulting for like the FBI, uh, military um, organizations? Is, is that still an active part of what you do for business? Or what, what, are, you, what are your focuses these days? Uh, we still have a lot of government clients, yeah. And, but uh, we're moving into the corporate realm and we're uh, teaching uh, senior executives, C-suite executives, and uh, some sales teams on uh, how to read people. There's a lot of hotels out there, a lot of airlines that want to do this kind of training. And uh, we even have a uh, program uh, now that we're teaching, I'm teaching with Mariel Hemingway called STAY, which is where we're teaching this behavior profiling stuff to uh, middle school and high school aged kids to recognize pre-suicide indicators that nobody else really talks about. That's great. Yeah, I think I think, um, or even suspect behavior to prevent certain incidents from happening in the future as well could be also an application, I would imagine. Um, so again, Chase, thank you so much for, uh, for being on the show. Like, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I love uh, chatting about like human behavior, psychology. Um, as I've mentioned to you before, I majored in biopsychology in college. So this stuff's like right up my alley. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've also studied things like NLP and, and things like that. So I have, I have a background in some of this stuff, but you're, you're taking it to a level that I've never taken it, but you're inspiring me also. So I really want to dive into your book and, and actually start stacking these behaviors and see how far I can take it. And I'm sure many of the listeners will as well. So thank you, Chase. You bet. Thanks for having me on, man. Take care. All right, everybody. That's the show for this week. Remember, If you want to win a poker, make sure to take the right drugs. I mean, we've revealed the secret to performance enhancement in poker. How much is that worth? I mean, come on. That interview alone for that one little nugget. 
Anyway, Chase Hughes, what he does is absolutely incredible. What I'm seeing right now on his website is that he's really opened up his business virtually. So if you're listening to this at around the time that I'm releasing the episode, which is in May of 2020, this interview was actually recorded back uh, about three or four months ago, maybe four or five months ago, possibly. It was it was a little while back. So uh, that's why you're not hearing references to coronavirus, because a lot of this came beforehand. But if you go to his website at chasehughes.com, you can register for several events that are available virtually, um, which are at a discount from his regular in-person rate. So there's opportunities to really get some of the material that he's teaching at a fraction of the price. I highly, highly recommend it if it's within your budget, because this guy is simply the best at what he does. Anyway, we got lots of more great content coming up. I'm going to be dropping an interview with Philip Stutz shortly, who is a political marketer and someone that has a ton of insight in marketing and political marketing in general. We're going to have a very interesting conversation, so stay tuned for that. Thank you so much. This has been the Business Dynamics Podcast. (laughs) 